So this course is, this, this class, this course seminar is called um, Biblical Theology. And I don't know about you, but the first time I ever heard of that term, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, isn't, theol- isn't all theology, shouldn't it all be biblical in some ways? Um, and so I, I had a difficult time at first under- kind of understanding that term. So a lot of this today is just kind of setting that, kind of the framework for that, um, helping us kind of understand what that means and what it is. Before we start, um, I'd like for you to, if you have, so you, some of you may not have this yet, but it, when, when you get it, to look at the back of this handout. So one of the things we want to do is kind of show you ahead of time where we're headed in this course. Okay, there's a bit of an overview of that. So you'll see that today is just defining the topic. What is biblical theology? Why is it important? Um, Especially in this culture today. Is this something just for seminarians or is this something that's really important for all of us who are just regular folks in the local church? And I'm going to argue that it is very important actually. It is, is a guard and a guide, but from that we're going to build on that, giving you tools of not just me or Sam or Trey kind of downloading information, but to give you really practical tools how to do biblical theology. So that's one of the things we'll get into next week is just starting the foundation of that. What are some tools to do that with? And then from there, as you can see from June um, the 17th on, is the, the very structure of, of doing biblical theology. So we'll spend a few weeks actually doing that. So part of this may be a bit interactive in the sense, hopefully it always is, but to, to getting you, it's one thing just to tell you something. It's another thing totally is to get you to, to actually do this. And that's where you really learn, um, you really learn the Bible in this way. You physically, mentally engaging with the scriptures and doing this. And then the last part of it, putting it all together, um, essentially putting the puzzle pieces together. So that's one of the analogies that I'm going to use, and I think Sam's going to probably pick up on that too, and I'll explain this a little bit more in a bit uh, as well, that the scriptures are a lot, in some ways, analogous to a gigantic puzzle piece. And it's not the fact that we don't know what the end puzzle looks like. We do know what it looks like. We have the box. We have the Bible. But putting it together, that God's fashioned the scriptures in such a way that it's actually synced together in certain ways, that we want to look at how God has revealed himself and how those pieces fit together. So I think this would be really helpful at the end to see how that works in some way. This is a long class, meaning it's 12 weeks, right, instead of six. So um, it's going to require some, uh, some time. I wish, and Sam wishes, probably Trey wishes too, that you could teach how to, how to look at the scriptures, how to interpret the scriptures, and do it three easy lessons. Well, I haven't found those three easy lessons, and I don't think Sam has or Trey has either. It just takes a little bit of time to do this. And so your patience is is going to be required um, to this as well. The other part of this, too, is to think about a question as we start this course. Um, one of the things I do, I get the privilege of doing, is teaching. And I teach writing and I teach literature. And one of the kind of similar questions that students come to when they read a text, when they come to um, a written text, um, is this. Can we read a text and maybe even understand a text Maybe you even know all the parts of the story of a text and yet fundamentally misread the text. I'll say that again. Is it possible to read a text to understand a story but fundamentally to misread the story? 
So I'm thinking of an example, for instance, um, I don't know if many of you have read uh, Lewis's piece of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. But that's kind of a classic example of that, right? Where you can read that story and you can understand it's great. But the first time I read it, um, I, I misread that story. I didn't understand all quite what was going on with Aslan and what C.S. Lewis was doing in that piece, what he was working with in that piece. So I understood the plot, read the story, misread the story. So I'll go back and reread it again. So that's one of the things we want to be really careful to do, is to go back, not just understand the story, make sure we're reading it correctly, actually the way God wants us to read this. Okay. So before we get started, let me pray. Let me pray for me, <laughs> and pray for all of us as we go through this course. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you so much. Lord, we are very grateful. Lord, I'm very thankful um, for these um, individuals who come today. Lord, I pray that... Um, we would be biblical in how we think. God, that I'd be very careful in what I say today. Uh, Lord, that we would take these tools away and not just to store them away, um, just, to, just to check a box that we've attended another class, but God, that we would use these things. Lord, that you would use these things in our lives. Lord, the Holy Spirit would use them um, to help us to understand you. God, you're the centerpiece of this. And as we study this, we're, we're studying who you are. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us in that. And I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So why biblical theology? Why is it important? What is it? These are things that we're going to look at. So if you see that kind of introductory part on your handout, those are some things we're going to look at today. Why is this important? Let me read to you um, actually one quote, and then let me relate to you a really tiny story get this started, why biblical theology is important. Brad, a few weeks ago, um, referenced a very actually prominent evangelical Southern Baptist pastor who made a comment um, about the Old Testament, that we've reached a certain point in our culture today, in the world, in the marketplace of ideas, that to really engage people, for Christianity to be relevant to people's lives, that we need to, quote, unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. Let me read to you a quote from a sermon, part of a sermon series that was done by this particular individual. He says this, quote, Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. The Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus created Christianity and launched it. And your whole house of Old Testament cards can come tumbling down. The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And everything else about it that he said. So, for instance, as we start off, is that, is that good biblical theology to say something like that? Is that, is that a proper way to kind of understand the scriptures in some kind of way, to look at it? So I hopefully that you see that's probably not the best way to come at the scriptures. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself tells us that post-resurrection, that he goes back to the Old Testament. He looks at and he takes them through probably the best Bible study that's ever been given. He takes the disciples through 
all the prophets, the writings, and the scriptures to show them actually who he is. That to disjunction or to unhinge the Old Testament from the New Testament is not only to fundamentally misread the Bible, it's fundamentally to misread who Jesus is. And that's a, very, that's a really serious error to make. Let me give you another story that's not from a prominent evangelical Southern Baptist pastor, but actually it was from a mom and a teacher, actually used to be a co-teacher of mine at a place that I work. And we had a brief, although strange, conversation one day uh, before chapel. And um, this mom approached me about her son, who was in the 12th grade at the time. And, her, and I'm not sure how we actually got into this conversation, but it kind of just happened this way. And so she, she began this conversation by talking about she was having trouble with the Old Testament. And there's a lot of things she didn't understand about it. And she was having a hard time explaining these things to her, old, her older son, uh, who had questions about the Old Testament. And she saw fundamentally a lot what this pastor saw as well, this kind of disjunction between Old Testament and New Testament. And so as she's telling me this, she's not necessarily asking my opinion on this. She's just kind of telling me this. And so at one point she says, I don't know what to do with my son I don't know because I don't, he has some of these questions. I don't know what to do with them. It seems to be there's certain things happening in the Old Testament. I can't explain them. So I've given him this piece of advice. Now, she wasn't asking me my opinion. She was just telling me this. And here was her advice to her son in the 12th grade. Her advice was actually not to read the Old Testament. That was my reaction to you. I see some of your faces. Yeah, to not read the Old Testament and just read the New Testament. Well, I think sometimes we live in this culture today, especially sort of American evangelical culture, where that's, that is kind of a prominent sentiment. If we, if we kind of poll people, we start asking them. Um, and I think primarily it's because we have, once again, as we've seen in this example, a really poor understanding of the Scriptures, and a really poor understanding of what it means to read the Scriptures, and essentially what it means to have a good biblical theology. So, what is biblical theology? I've used this term a few times already, right? So, one of the things I think is best when defining things is to try to simplify things without distorting things, right? So, let me give you a couple definitions. You can jot down a couple of phrases on this in, in your notes, hopefully, too. One way that we want to look at biblical theology is this. Um, we want to look not only at the content of what biblical theology is, but we want to look at its teaching we want to look at the whole story of Scripture and how it fits together. So I'll say that again. We want to look at, yes, the content. We want to look at the teaching. We want to look at the whole story. Sometimes in this term in theology, we'll use a term what's called meta-narrative, this sort of overarching story, how it all fits together. So you can't, for example, dis, um, unhinge Genesis for example, from the New Testament epistles. You can't unhinge um, Genesis 3, I'll pick on that one for example, with the atoning work of Christ. You have to have those two things. If you don't have Genesis 3, the atoning work of Christ makes no sense whatsoever. So answering these kind of questions, why did Jesus come? Right? So the biblical theology helps us in this way. 
Michael Lawrence, by the way, is a couple of good things. And if you turn back on your, the back side of your uh, handout again, you'll see this. Some, some good resources to this, too. Michael um, Lawrence has written a book called, um, I'm sorry, uh, Rick, Rick, Nick Roark and Robert Klein wrote a book called Biblical Theology. And it's really good. It's part of the Nymark series as well. Um, and he defines, and they define biblical theology in a similar fashion, right? It's looking at the whole structure, the whole story of, of the scriptures themselves. Um, there is a very good book on here I would highly recommend on this resource page. Um, it's called Christ from Beginning to End by Trent Hunter and Stephen Wellam. It's a very good book, and it's very easy to actually understand. And it's going to break up in similar fashion what that handout is, how to go through the scriptures, how to do biblical theology. And I'd highly recommend that as well. The last one on that list is From Dust to Glory by R.C. Sproul. It's just a great title, right? From Dust to Glory. And I bring that up because, once again, defining what biblical theology is, if you kind of get that title in your head, that's, that's essentially biblical theology. From dust, from who we are, to glory. And the redemptive story, the history behind that. How God is moving in this way. So as one writer said, Michael Lawrence said, uh, to define biblical theology as this, is to tell the whole story of the whole Bible. So that would be a good thing to write down. It's telling the whole story of the whole Bible. So that's what kind of what we're after here to do that. By the way, biblical theology is not any higher or any better than other ways of studying the scriptures as well. So one of the other classes I teach where I work is something called systematic theology. Okay? And so systematic theology and biblical theology actually go really well hand in hand. So while biblical theology is kind of an overview, a meta-narrative, looking at all parts of the scriptures, how it all fits together, systematic theology is a way that you look at the systematically, you look at it, organ, you, how, the Bible, how the Bible is organized in such a way. For example, what does the Scripture say about God? What does the Scripture say about salvation or sin or um, anthropology, who we are? What is man? So it's not, biblical theology isn't set against systematic theology. It's just coming at the Scriptures and studying the Scriptures in two different ways. Let me give you an illustration maybe that would be helpful with that. So um, I don't know about you. I like college baseball a lot. Hogs are playing this weekend in the regionals, right? Um, So if you think about the idea of biblical theology and systematic theology, you could think of it like this, like a newspaper um, article. So if the Hogs win, they play at, what, 2 o'clock today, right? If they win today, they'll win and they move on, right? They'll, They'll swept the series. Well, biblical theology would be this. It would be the paragraph or paragraphs telling what happened in the game today and what happened over the series of this weekend. That would be biblical theology. It'd tell you the narrative. Systematic theology is the title. It's the headline. Hogs win, baseball series, move on. So it's a good way, I think, to consider What's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology? Once again, one's not better than the other. They actually both need one another. And they're both assuming certain things about one another as well. Basically and fundamentally, that the scriptures are from God. They're inspired. They're inerrant. They're all these things that we've, you've heard and you've heard talked about as well.
One other illustration before we move on. Did you see this on your handout too? And I mentioned this a few minutes ago. So I'll give you cheesy um, visual illustration as well. So I mentioned to you that a good way to kind of think visually about biblical theology is to think about how the scriptures are a puzzle and not a mosaic. I'm going to ask you to answer a question for me. What is a mosaic? Yeah, it's a bunch of tiles, pieces of shard, of glass, or clay, or whatever, and it's randomly put together to compose a picture. Now, why would you think that considering the Bible to be a puzzle would be a better analogy than to say that the Bible is a mosaic? Got the, got the whole picture, and then you, you put it into, see how it fits and how it fit together. That's for the whole picture. Yes? Yeah, the pieces fit perfectly. Yeah. There's structure to it as well. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Difference between a puzzle and a mosaic. There's nothing random about it. That's right. Someone else over here? Yeah, only the, every piece fits in only one particular spot, and it was meant for that spot. It was perfectly fitted for that. Yeah, what, what you were saying over here is absolutely true as well. If it's just randomly pieces put together, then, and if it's just arbitrarily put together that way, then it's up to you to create the meaning of that. In other words, you can put the pieces wherever you want and make meaning of it whatever you want. We live in a culture who's vi- where, that's very much akin to that idea of creating our own meaning out of things. We like to read things into things instead of reading out from the text. It's a fundamental difference. And so, yeah, thinking through the Bible, thinking through biblical theology in this way, that God has fit together these pieces in such a way that you can't force them any other way. I don't know about you, growing up, when you put a, a puzzle together, you go back and you look at the box, and then you come back and you, you try to hit the corners, and then eventually you run into a piece and you go, that piece looks so close. I think I, so you get close to the end, right? And you think, I think I can make this fit. And you're like, like try to force it in. And it may sort of fit, but eventually it's, it's just not going to work, right? Because there's still, there's still like a space in between. Well, God is purposely put together this picture and it's fit together perfectly because it's from him and this is why we want to see the scriptures this way so the tools that Sam's going to give us later on things that the trade's going to tell us about as well are essentially these how these pieces work and it's not something that we've imposed upon that because if we have then we need to step up a few back up a few steps to, to reconsider what we've done but to read the scriptures for what they are, how God has revealed them in this way. By the way, analogies always break down. Okay? It's just the, the nature of it, right? Um, so maybe a, one step further to think about this, that the scriptures are more than just, yeah, they're like a puzzle. We know the end product of the puzzle. But it's more than just revealing a picture, as Hunter and Wellam say in their books, where I stole this analogy from it's more than just revealing a picture. That the Bible reveals 
a person. Christianity, Christianity, the centerpiece of this puzzle is obviously, as you well know, is the person and the work of Christ. And so the pieces fit, and they fit absolutely. They fit perfectly because God's orchestrated that. And they reveal Christ. That's what we want to look at, right? That's what we want it to be the heart and the center of it as well. Well, in thinking about all those things, we want to consider just some foundational things that we'll keep coming back to. Sam will keep coming back to this. Trey will keep coming back to this too. I will as well. Some really foundational things when we start to consider biblical theology. So once again, biblical theology is this meta-narrative. It's this overarching story. How all the parts of the pieces of the puzzle fit together in this way. So if you take a look at this handout for a second, one of the things we want to look at and consider, maybe even consider just for a few minutes, is some of the features about story. And in particular, not just any story, but about a divine story, a story from God, how God reveals himself. And he reveals himself in certain ways, his revelation, his divine revelations in certain ways. So these are kind of parts of the corners that we start filling in on this puzzle piece as well. So one of the first things that you'll see when we talked about the character of divine revelation, how God reveals himself in the scriptures is this, this first one, that it, God reveals in his revelation is what's called progressive. It's progressive. Now, automatically, I should think, probably put a warning at the start of this <laughs> before I say much more to that. So we live in a culture today, sometimes within evangelical Christianity, that um, God is still perhaps revealing himself. Right? You may have even heard that term. Well, the scriptures don't say that because, once again, we're told that the scriptures are once for all delivered to the saints, that we have the complete picture. We've got the complete word of God. But what's meant here in biblical theology with that, that his revelation is progressive is this, that God over time, over actually two millennia, if we've accumulated the scriptures in this way. He slowly revealed himself through redemptive history. Now, this is in stark contrast to a lot of other religions that we see today. So, for example, Islam teaches and has taught that the Quran was delivered at one time to one man, almost essentially kind of dropped from heaven. Um, Buddhism, Confucianism, teach that um, their holy works is delivered to um, a single individual. But the scriptures themselves teach something much different. They teach the fact that God has slowly revealed himself over time. That God acts. And not only does he act, I I think this is the important thing to write down, not only does he act in history progressively, but he explains those actions. Not only does he act and has acted, but he explains those actions as well. So, for example, we can point to the exodus, conquests of Canaan, the exile and return of Israel, ultimately the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. So, the Bible doesn't just record these things. It explains these things over time that we've seen this. So when it says, I'll mention this later, when it talks about in Genesis when the seed of evil crushed the head of the serpent, well, we know that that starts off very slow, and I'll mention this in a few minutes, but we see that it gets much more complicated as the scriptures kind of unfold, and we see this redemptive narrative history 
unfolds itself in that way too. So it's progressive. Number two, that God's revelation isn't just progressive, but it's also fundamentally uh, and actually irreducibly historical as well. That God has revealed himself in history. That he's done these particular acts. And once again, these acts have been of an objective nature. So people say sometimes, you hear people say, um, well, I'm afraid to, to tell the gospel because I feel like people think I'm shoving a religion down their throat. Well, if you think about it, what you're doing in telling the gospel is you're telling objective facts that happen in historical time and space. That the gospel itself, if you think about it, right, this, that the gospel itself is objective. It has historical components to it. There was a real Christ, a real Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, he really did live in time and space. He was a real person. If you read the New Testament writers, they're, they're hitting on that all the time. We saw him. We touched him. We, we talked to him in time and space. We've talked about the idea of the gospel being uh, something that's of data, right, of information. But it's also a sense, do we believe that information? Do we acknowledge that information? So there's the objective part of it. It's historical in that sense. But the scriptures and the gospel itself is also has a subjective component to it as well. What do we do with that information personally? So, yeah, I can believe that the scriptures are divine. I can accept that Jesus is the Son of God. But we all know, we've talked about this before, that doesn't save me. That's, those are objective things. Those doesn't save me. What saves me is my trusting in those things, my reliance upon those things. And I have to do that individually. We have to do that individually as well. So biblical theology is progressive. We look at how it reveals himself, how God reveals himself. Progressive, historical. Um, but a third thing is that it's organic. And I don't mean that in the whole food sense. Okay? It's organic. Okay? And I mentioned this a few minutes ago. So I'm going to throw different analogies at you as we go through this. So what do I mean that the that divine revelation is organic? Well, we see as the story of God's redemptive history unfold that it actually starts, as one writer puts this, as like a seed. So once again, back to the Genesis, right? Back to Genesis 3. That the promise that God makes that, Eve's, that the offspring of Eve's, um, the Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And we see that get more and more complex. We see that seed grow and grow over time through the Old Testament and obviously come to fruition in the New Testament. And it comes to fruition with Christ himself. So it becomes in this progressive sense, it's in the historical sense, it is in this, this organic sense as well. Number four. That God's revelation in history and it is in history. And it's therefore actually really practical for our lives. It's really practical for our lives. So what do I mean by that? Um, that this story is not just a story, uh, and it's not just a way of looking at the Bible for people who really love history. And it's not just a story and a way to look at the story for people who really love literature. 
But this is a story actually about you, and it's about me. You're involved in the story. And so it's, it's intimately practical in that way for us to know how God has revealed himself. Once again, it's not just for academics. It's not just for people who go to seminary. It's actually for people, once again, as I said earlier, it's for people like you and it's for people like me who sit under preaching every Sunday and we hear God's word and it, with the spirit, changes our lives. So when we study the scriptures, it's inherently practical for us because we're part of that. This is God's word. And if you're God's child, then the spirit uses that word. It changes you. It changes me in that way. It becomes very practical to look at in that fashion. So with that in mind, looking at how God has revealed himself, how divine, the character of divine revelation. One of the other things we want to look at is, once again, how this relates to the Bible itself. So what kind of text are we looking at? Some of this I know a lot of you have grown up in church. You, you've heard all this. You've maybe heard some parts of it as well. But I think it's a good thing to kind of keep, keep uh, as a reminder in this. We talk about what kind of text are we looking at? Because once again, we keep coming back to this over and over again. So no matter what part of the piece of the puzzle that we're looking at, these are things we want to come back to over and over again. What, what is the Bible? And how do we consider that? So one of the first things we want to consider um, is this. I'm going to have you look up this passage with me for a second before I, before I tell you this. So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It's a very familiar passage probably to most people in here. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. As you're turning there, I just want a little side note here. I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking through this lesson. The things that God treasures the most, if you think about this, is what he actually gives to us. The things that God treasures the most is actually what he gives to us. He gives us his son, and he gives us his word. And you can't pull those two things apart. You can't unhinge them in any kind of way. Those two things are intimately linked together this way. So 1 Peter, by the way, people come to this passage and they'll oftentimes use this passage, and rightly so, they'll use this passage to look at that the scriptures are from God. And it's an, it's an accurate interpretation to look at, because that's what Peter's doing. But there's a little phrase in here that Peter uses too that I think is really important also. Um, and it's this. So this is 19 through 21. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which we will do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. Did I see First Peter? I said Second Peter. Sorry, I just realized that. It's a sword drill. <laughs> this is how I know you know biblical theology. Sorry. It's summer. There we go. Verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as a, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20. 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke. And they spoke from God. And as they they did so, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So some quick considerations here. We talk about the Scriptures, what we mean by that. What are the characteristics of the Bible? So one of the first ones is this. That, once again, the Bible is, yes, historical. We talked about that a few minutes ago. But it's also of human as well. There are human writers in this. Right? So if you think about this, I mentioned this a few minutes ago, that, I don't know if you can see this in the back or not, but there is a connection here, there's a link, this idea between the Scriptures and actually Jesus himself, that God gives to us what he, he ultimately most treasures, his word and his son. And there's some striking similarities between those two things as well. That the scriptures, sometimes we get a little bit shaky when we talk about these things, but that the scriptures are from, have human writers. And that always brings up a question in church history, like how did that actually happen? Did the Holy Spirit uh, take over the person? Um, did they have automatic writing? Were they eating a sandwich and their hand just kind of stuck out here and they just started writing? And they finished the sandwich and oh, I got Second Peter. Right? I meant to write First Peter, but I got Second Peter. Right? Or, or, we just, or were they just kind of automatons? Were they just robots? Right? Uh, did they just happen to kind of just zone out for a few uh, couple of hours and the Holy Spirit kind of took over their thoughts and they just wrote this? Well, no. We clearly see by looking at all the scriptures, right, that each individual book written by several individuals, several cultures, several languages as well, that the characteristics, the personality of the people come out in those things. So it's, it's very much so that it's an intensely human book in that way. So we have to understand, for example, when we do biblical theology, we have to understand the cultures that were, that were at work uh, during the time that these, these texts were written. Right? So, for example, I teach, I teach a World Lit class, um, comp, or each comp and then World Lit 1 and 2. One of the first texts we read in World Lit is one of the oldest written texts that we have, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And one of the difficulties in trying to understand the Epic of Gilgamesh, and some of you may have struggled through that text, is to understand the culture of the Mesopotamian world. Why did they do things the way they did? We don't do those things anymore, right? Um, we, we, don't, we don't think about these things the way that that culture would think about those things. So this becomes really important to understand culturally and then the language of that too. But there's also the other part of this as well, is that even though this book is written about other cultures and other languages, that ultimately this book begins to reveal something very unique that transcends the culture. And that's this. This book reveals that human beings are human beings. Whether they're in the fourth century Mesopotamian era or they're in 2018 at a Starbucks off of College Avenue that there's certain underlying things that we all struggle with. We have a sin nature. We have desires, right? These are the things that get revealed. So the Bible is inherently that. It, 
it constitutes those things, right? That's the continuity of it, though, the scriptures that reveal who we are. So it's not just the fact of something that happened in the second century, first century B.C., but it, re- it reflects who we are as well. Second thing. By the way, Jesus is human. It was one of the early heresies in the early part of the early church is that Jesus wasn't really human, right? He just appeared to be human. We have these councils that come out later that Jesus is truly God. Vera homo, vera deus, this Latin phrase. Truly man, truly God. He's God incarnate. And as such, we see this on a reflection in the scriptures as well, that Jesus is God. And that the Bible, while it is an intensely human book, that it's also an intensely and above all divine book as well. That it's actually from God. So 2 Timothy, this passage. I think I have this one right. So you take a look at this one. This is 2 Timothy. Once again, a passage that you know really well, I assume. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So we'll look at verse 16 for a second. If you have that, would someone read that? 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, verse 16. Am I reading that? Yes, Justice. Yeah, this is a great statement that Paul makes that all Scripture is, so your translation, some of your translations maybe say inspired by God. Better translation that it's breathed out by God. This term theonustus, the idea that Paul says in writing this that the Scriptures are not God inhaling, but actually God exhaling. That it's breathed out by him. And what Paul's getting at here in this sense, and he, he ties us in, in in Romans 1, too, that the scriptures are from God. Right? They are originating from him. Peter reinforces this, right? That all the scriptures are actually coming from God. Yes, using human writers to do that, but they come from him. So really quick, some practical implications of that as we do biblical theology. Once again, I know you know this, okay? But it's a good reminder to think through this. What's the implications of the fact that, that what you're holding in your hand is actually from God himself? And one of the implications of that is what the Bible says is what actually God says. So what the Bible says is what God says. Another implication is that the Bible's infallible. It's inerrant. These big terms that we throw around sometimes, but they're really good terms. So what do they mean? They're infallible. That the scriptures are without error. They're incapable of error, which is what inerrancy gets to. It's, it gives a true state of affairs. That the scriptures are themselves inerrant and infallible. They're actually from God. And therefore, because of that, they contain no contradictions. Side note, several years ago, there were two prominent evangelical theologians that were invited to give a talk at Princeton Seminary. And Princeton at the time had took what a lot of mainline liberal seminaries have taken, sort of this left turn into looking at what the scriptures actually are. So they would hold to the fact that 
the scriptures are an inspirational book, they would just they would just have a very hard time saying that the scriptures are from God. So this prominent um, evangelical theologian stood up in the months of all these students and their professors at, this, at Princeton Seminary, and he wrote a phrase on the board that encapsulated what they were arguing. And so this is what he did. See that in the back with my terrible handwriting. The Bible is the word of God which has errors. And he, when he wrote that on the board, as you can well imagine, people went ballistic. Because when you write something like that down, even though you would never say something like that out loud, this is what they were arguing. That the scriptures aren't really divine. If they're not divine, then they most certainly can contain contradictions and errors to them. And this theologian just wanted to make sure that they understood what actually they were arguing. And he wrote it out. And then he did something even, I think, really funny and actually really accurate. So they had a conniption fit when they saw that. And then he did this. He started slowly taking away words. So now we have the Word of God which has errors. They would give the fact that the scriptures are intensely human. And because they're human, they would argue they're intensely riddled with contradictions and errors. And therefore, you can't trust it. And this theologian's pressing them on this point. If this is case, if this is so, think through this. And then he goes back to the blackboard. They, by this time, they're squirming in their seats. They're throwing things. They're having beyond conniption fit here what he's just done. But he keeps going. He, he essentially takes all the cushy pillows away from their theology. And so he does this. God errors. So what he's doing is this. He's making this an all-or-nothing proposition. And that's what it is when we come to the Scriptures. It's either all from God or none of it is. So I had a student once who came to me after class, which is oftentimes the deadliest part because students have these intense questions. And this, this student came to me after class one day, and he said, he, he claimed to be an atheist. He, hadn't, he was pretty vocal about that, but he still attended church, which is really funny. But he attended this very um, conservative I'm sorry, very liberal, mainline denominational church. And so he came to me one day, and I had my Bible up on my desk, and he said, um, I just, Wednesday night, I just had a um, youth pastor who's getting his PhD. And he, I think he said that because the guy's getting a PhD. I don't have a PhD, so the PhD kind of trumps me, probably does, right? But he said, my, my youth pastor, who's getting a PhD, um, said that parts of the Bible are true and parts of it are not true. What do you think about that? And I said, really? So I took the scriptures and I opened them up kind of randomly. 
and I turned it around, and I pushed it across the desk to him, and I said, well, I'm kind of banking my life on this. I'd like to know what parts of the scriptures are true and what parts are not true. So here's a pen. Would you, in Luke chapter 11, just kind of highlight for that for me? I'd really like to know that. And he had this kind of blank stare on his face. And he said, well, I can't do that. I said, well, why can't you do that? You just told me that some parts of this are true and some parts of it are not true. I'd like to know how do you know that. Not only what parts of it are not true, how do you know that? And he said, well, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, you're right. You don't know. Because you've imposed, actually, your youth pastor has imposed this kind of arbitrary understanding of the scriptures. And then I said something I probably shouldn't have said, but I kind of didn't regret it so much later, <laughs> is that I, I told him, I said, you go back and tell your youth pastor, I'd really like to have lunch with him. Let's talk through this. But if he doesn't want to have lunch, can I tell you to give you, can I relay a message to him through you? And he said, sure. And I said, okay, here's the message I'd like for you to tell your youth pastor. Who's getting a PhD, you should know this, right? I said, will you please get out of the ministry, get another PhD in something else? Because you're killing people. Now, I expected to get, like, hate mail, and I never heard, obviously, from that person. I don't know if that student actually told that person that. But I want to take kind of a little side note to, to understand that. That's kind of the culture that we live in today. They have no problem talking about the scriptures being human and maybe even being inspirational. But they're going to choke. They're going to gag on that idea that the scriptures are more than just inspirational. They're actually inspired. And they're from God. And because they're from God, we take that actually really seriously. The scriptures are human, yes. They're by human writers. But behind all that is a God who's directing that. And a God who, if he is God, and he is, does not contain error. If he contains error, he's not God. And therefore, his word is not, uh, will contain error as well. But since God is God, and he cannot contain error, and his word is from him, then therefore we can ultimately trust this word. Okay? Side note, but I think of an important one as well. Well, number three, that the scriptures are not just human, they're not just divine, but they actually they're tell a narrative. Now there are other, and Sam and, and Trey's going to get into this later, the scriptures tell more than just a narrative. It has other genres to it. But at the heart of it, it's a narrative. It's a story. So it has genre such as poetry, right, and didactic literature, teaching literature, right, the, the epistles of the New Testament, right? But at the heart of it is this overarching storyline. I mentioned this a few minutes ago, that it's a, it's a meta-narrative. Huge story, tells us how all the parts of the pieces fit together in that way. But it's more than just a story. It's a story about God revealing himself, once again. And this is why we call this part of it in biblical theology, this idea of promise fulfillment or the fact that God has, um, re this is called a redemptive story or redemptive history. 
That doesn't mean to say that redemptive history is some kind of alternate history. But the fact that God working in history to reveal himself in the story. And they're actually a part of that story in this way. By the way, there's a famous um, philosopher in the 19th century named Hegel who got this fundamentally mixed up too. Who thought that God was, yes, revealing himself in history, but thought that God was history. And that God was discovering himself as history went on. Yeah. So if God's God, um, he can't find out something new about himself. But Hegel said that's what God was doing. He was finding out new things about himself. That's not what we're arguing because that's not what the scriptures are saying. That God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. We know these things because of how the scriptures has revealed of his nature, his character. And he's worked himself out, his plan out, I should say, in redemptive history, culminating, once again, in the person and in the work of Christ. Okay? So the scriptures are human, they're divine, they tell a story, they're this narrative. They, they do this one thing that the 16th century reformers say, what the scriptures do, is that the scriptures, so pardon me if I use this phrase, it's in Latin, but I like it, that the 16th century reformers said that the scriptures are the norma normans non normata. And you scratch your head and go, what in the world does that mean? The norma normans non normata. That the scriptures are the norm of norms without a norm. That it's authoritative. That this story is not just a story. It's actually an authoritative story because it's from God. And because it's an authoritative story, we line up ourselves to it, not it to us. I've read a lot of books in my life, and the scriptures are, is the only book I've ever read that reads me. I've read a lot of books in my life. It's the only book that I've ever read that reads me because it tells me fundamentally who I am. And therefore, it has authority over my life. Not me reading into it, but me reading out of it. And that's why when, when Sam does this, the idea of these tools, when we talk about this word of exegesis, right? It's a big word. So we get the word, we have exit signs over, over exit ways, right? To go out of. That we want to read out of the text, not into the text. We don't want to impose. We're not, it's not a mosaic. We're not putting the, spreading the pieces in. We're reading out of the text. How do these pieces fit together in that way? Number four, that the scriptures are structured by covenants. Now, I'm not going to get into all those because I don't have time, and I'd still say I'm in Trey's thunder by doing that. But the idea of that the scriptures, if you think about it this way, if the scriptures are themselves this puzzle, that the covenants are, are in, in some fashion, what you, this the table that you put all the puzzle pieces out on, that gives support to it. It's the underpinning. Let me use another analogy. It's the backbone of the skeleton that all the other parts of the bones fit together. That, that covenants do this. By the way, God reveals himself by covenants, not by a contract. And there's a huge difference between those things. He reveals himself by covenant, not by contract. So covenant with Noah and Adam, covenant with Abraham, right? All these covenants that we see that uh, Sam and Trey are going to get into. 
I think that's a really important thing to remember. So, for example, a contract is a relationship that's based on an obligation. A contract is, an, is a relationship based on an obligation, of some sort of monetary obligation for that. A covenant is not like that. It's an obligation based on a relationship. This is why we don't talk about marriage contracts. We do, but that's a terrible way to think about marriage. We think we talk about marriage as a marriage, what? Covenant. Obligations based on a relationship. And friends, we see that. That's why that's so important is because it reveals the character of God. Okay, so that's one of the things we really want to look at when we talk about biblical theology, this issue of covenants in this way. Okay. Number five, the centerpiece of the story, the centerpiece of the puzzle, is the fact of God's glory and salvation through judgment. Jim, this salvation through, is the glory of sal- in salvation through judgment. The glory in salvation through judgment. Jim Hamilton produced a book with that very title, talking about what is the centerpiece of, of Christianity. And at the heart of it is this, is once again the person and the work of Christ, what he came to do. Biblical theology answers these really good questions like this. I have a student ask me this once. Think about this in your own mind, how you'd answer this. Why did Jesus have to come and live 33 years? Why doesn't he, so think about this, you're standing in class and a student asks you this question. Why couldn't Jesus just come down on a Friday, walk up to Golgotha, crawl on the cross, die, go to the tomb, resurrected, kind of make a weekend of it, go back, and he's done. Why this long life? So think about how you'd answer, you don't have to answer that now, but think about how you'd answer that question. Well, biblical theology is going to give you the answer to that question because it's going to tell you, the scriptures are going to tell you the answer to that question. Why is that? Why is that so important? That's at the center of it. So this is kind of the framework of what we'll be looking at with biblical theology. Last thing, now we'll spread a little bit of time in case you want to ask me a question. Last thing is this, the other half of it. I'm not going to spend so much time on this part because this is essentially what we'll be unpacking through the course for the remainder of these few weeks as well. But why biblical theology? I've talked about why is it important, but why ultimately are we doing this? Why is this important? Is this just for seminarians? And I've answered that, hopefully, to convince you in the next few weeks that's not the case. It's very important because biblical theology gives us two really good um, working tools in the church. It's both a guard in in the local church, and it's a guide. It's a guard, and it's a guide. Okay? So, for example... If I were to read you this passage, and I will, um, tell me how someone might misinterpret this passage, these two passages. Ready? So I'm going to read you this passage. Tell me how someone might misinterpret this passage. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Blessed be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of the cattle and the increase of the herds and the young of, the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. By the way, that's Deuteronomy chapter 28. Or this one, Proverbs 11. One person gives freely, yet another even more. 
another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, but whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. How might somebody misinterpret that, those two passages together? Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is classic kind of prosperity gospel that we hear, right? So it's the idea of you'll receive a blessing, right? Or the asking part of it. Prayer of Jabez. Gazillion copies sold, right? You may have read that. Yes, it is a prayer. Yes, it is. We should read part of the scriptures, right? But taken out of context, this can get us into a world of trouble because it comes to the fact if you just ask, then you'll receive, and you'll receive a lot of blessings. You'll get a lot of Rolex watches, or as one prominent um, pastor, t- TV evangelical, evangelical, I'm not sure I called him evangelical, but TV pastor put, came out like in the past two weeks, maybe you've heard of this, that God told him to tell all of his followers to give him $54 million because he really needed this jet airplane. He's got three others, but they're not quite the $54 million. So he needs that one, right? And so what kind of passages do you hear people bring to that? Well, um, things like this, that um, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they say, Jesus is saying this, and it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So if you agree with me that I need $54 million to buy a new airplane, we're in agreement, plant a seed offering, I'll send you something in return, we'll be good, right? So we see these things all the time. And yeah, we scoff at them, we laugh at them. But un- inherently, yes, bad biblical theology but it's also, once again, an affront to God because it's misreading his character. We've got to be really, obviously, very careful with that as well. So as a guard, we want to guard against taking things out of context. I think I put on your handout the idea of a blessing, um, of asking, or this one, um, how this one can be misread. He is the image of the invisible God. This is from Colossians. The firstborn of all creation. How would somebody misread that? That he was created. So Jehovah's Witness, classic to that argument. There was a, there was a famous heresy, it was a long-standing one in the early church called Arianism. Arius taught this very same thing. He had a rhyme with it. He had a song with it as well. That God was, from that passage, Jesus was created. He wasn't fully divine. He was a created being. So taking those things out of context, bad biblical theology, can get you into all kinds of bad places. So it's a guard for that as well. Last thing, it's also a guide. And we're going to spend a lot of time this toward the end of the course as well. That it's a guide against such things as this. It's a guide for these things. It's like if you go to, which I'm a terrible bowler, but if you've gone bowling, right, and if you're a really poor bowler, especially if you have little kids, what do you do? You pay for the bumpers, right? You put the bumpers on the side, this is the only way I can bowl. And then you roll the ball down, and it bangs off both sides, and eventually you maybe get a strike, right? Well, biblical theology, if you think of that kind of analogy, go bowling and think of that, is that it's bumpers that really does guide. It guides Brad or whoever is preaching um, not to um, pull something out of context. It guides preaching. Okay? So when you're reading something, you want to read something in context and then preaching it from that as well. So it's a guide for that. It's a guide for how we do missions. It's a guide for how we structure the church. Why don't we baptize infants? 
Well, we get that hopefully from biblical theology, right? By looking at the scriptures. Um, so the structures of these things that we look at, these are all part and parcel of what we mean when we talk about biblical theology. All right? So a bit of a rush job at the end, yes, but that's what we're going to kind of be unpacking a lot of. By the way, you may have questions too. How does the church relate to the state? Right? What about these, these social issues that's, that's really, really predominant in the culture right now? Biblical theology gives us a way to address those very things in a very kind of practical way. All right, you've been very patient. Questions? Something I said, you know, like, I don't know what you said. I don't know what you meant by that. If you ask me a question, I'll ask you one too. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> well, that's a great question. I did ask. Actually, as a student, ask it. So the question was: is the question that was asked me? Um, why did why, why didn't Jesus come down on a Friday? And I don't want to make this crass, but go to Golgotha, die on a cross, die. Rise again on the third day, go back to heaven. Why, this, why all this suffering? Well, actually, the scriptures tell us that, right? That we need Jesus' life as much as we need his death and resurrection. And how do we know that? Because one of the best books in the New Testament of biblical theology is the book of Hebrews, which is actually a sermon. And if you think about it, it's an it's an exegetical work of the Old Testament. It tells us that Jesus is a better Moses. It tells us all those things. But fundamentally, it tells us this. We need Jesus' life. We need him to be fully obedient to the law because I can't be fully obedient to the law. There's only one person that did that, and his name is Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's the son of, the fa- of the God who's the father, father of the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We need his life as much as we need his death. We need all of it. He as a perfect sacrifice. This is one of the things that Jesus talks about, the fact that he's reflective of that, right? So Jesus fulfills these three great um, offices of the Old Testament. Prophet, these three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the prophet who's the fulfillment of that. He's the high, he is the high priest, and he's the sacrifice. And he is not just a king. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And if you read the scriptures for kind of the, the, the climactic part of the scriptures, I think it's actually found in Philippians when Paul says that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the Glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. That's this climactic moment that we're going to see of who Jesus is. Yeah, we need both of those parts as well. All right. I think it's time. Let me pray for you really quick.